North Organic CBD is a new sponsor of Holding Court. I love their CBD gummies. They come in two delicious flavors, strawberry lemonade and green apple. I've had them both, both amazing. One a day and you're totally okay. I like to stay active. I like to keep playing tennis. I like to get in the gym. That's why I love North Organic CBD. Their products are made in the USA. They're high quality. They're specially formulated, broad spectrum, organic CBD products for everyday adventurers. Don't forget about the very popular CBD salve from North Organics. Immediate relief of any physical pain. I use it daily for my sore shoulders, sore knees, hips, you name it. It works wonders. Go to NorthOrganicCBD.com and enter Patrick20, that's Patrick20, for 20% off your order. Welcome everyone to Holding Court, Patrick McEnroe, and I've been waiting a long, long time for this opportunity to speak to one and only Billy Jean K. I don't know where to start, Billy, because uh, all you have done and continue to do in your incredible life, um, you like to say pressure is a privilege. That's one of your many famous lines. Yeah, it's, I do like that. It's a pleasure and a privilege for me to have <laughs> you on my podcast. So thank you so much thank for joining you. No, thanks for having me on. You know, you're, you're so busy. I've been watching you on ESPN, CNN. You name it. I, Patrick is appearing. I hope you're getting some time for yourself. But uh, I, anyway, I, congratulations I, on all your what you're doing. And uh, you, you're really great at commentating, I think. Thank you, Billy. Well, this is this is always what you do. Whenever uh, I see you interviewed, you always turn it around to the other person, which is an amazing quality. Um, so where do we start? Is a question, because uh, this is your time with me. Uh, I could go on any direction that you want to go. But what I want to start with, actually, is I'd like to start with your book, because I read your book All In, which just came out in the last year. And it's your autobiography about your life, how it started, how you started in tennis. Um, And I guess what I'm most interested in, in addition to your incredible tennis career, 39 majors, 20 Wimbledons, we could go on on that is when it struck you in your childhood that you that you wanted and that you could make a difference in the world, in addition to being a great tennis player? Well, um, well, thanks for reading the book. First of all, it's a long one. Uh, yes, but we had uh, we had twice as many. Pa- we actually had about 900 pages, had to get it down to 400 plus. And, you know, it took almost five years. So my heart and soul I'm, I, and uh, everyone else like Marianne Vollers and John and Howard, some of the authors, um, Helen Russell, our researcher. You cannot believe the amount of research. So um, I started when I got, when Susan Williams asked me to play tennis, I played all team sports. I played everything. And I said, what's tennis? And she said, and I said, what do you do? And she says, you get to run, jump and hit a ball. So uh, that was great. And so the first time I went to the public parks with Clyde Walker, I, it was the second time I picked up a racket. I knew by the end of the day, I wanted to be number one in the world. And of course, my poor mother comes to pick me up and I'm <laughs> jumping up and down and saying, I found what I'm doing with my life, you know, and she says, that's fine, but you have homework. And my mother, oh, you know, you have to understand, I have a younger brother, um, Randy, uh, who played 12 years of professional baseball. Right. So you've got two kids in the household. My dad's a firefighter. Things are tight financially. I mean, it's, we're, we're fine, but there's no extras. And so, um, with the two of us having such ambition, 
Um, my parents really ended up working three jobs and really helping. But um, if I hadn't had that free access at the parks in, in Long Beach, California, and if I hadn't had free coaching with Clyde Walker, I wouldn't be talking to you as a past former champion or whatever. So I'm really grateful to everyone. Uh, but I knew at 12, fast forward one year, uh, I was daydreaming at the Los Angeles Tennis Club. And I realized everybody wore white shoes, white socks, white clothes, played with white balls, and everybody who played was white. And I just, I've been very interested in the civil rights in the Southeast with the education, the segregation. I was fascinated by that. I hated it. I didn't understand it. And I, so anyway, I just remember that we need everyone. Where's every, as I said, where's everybody else? Mm. So that, but then I realized that tennis, I always used to go up to the map in fourth grade, fifth grade to look where I wanted to go. And I wanted to travel my whole life. And I realized that tennis was in Wimbledon in England. Uh-huh. And I started to realize it's played all over the world. And I thought if, if I was fortunate enough to be number one, I might be able to make a difference um, and really fight for equality. And I, I made that promise to myself that day at the Los Angeles tennis club, I'm that I'm going to fight for equality the rest of my life. And tennis Fortunately, it became, and I didn't know the word platform, but I was envisioning that it gave me a platform, but I didn't know the word. I just knew that I was lucky that tennis was global, that, you know, I just, and I love tennis. I mean, I loved hitting the ball. You know, I played softball. I played shortstop. I must have touched the ball six times probably in a game, and I was leadoff batter because I was the youngest one. I was 10. And I thought, geez, I get to bat once every ninth time. I get six balls hit to me and in tennis, I can hit a hundred balls in five minutes. It's like, this is the greatest. So anyway, it was fun. Is it true that what you say, I'm sure it's true because you say it in your book about when you first recognized discrimination, maybe, maybe not the right word, but when, when your mom um, made you your shorts to play and you Mm -hmm. getting the trophy and you weren't allowed to be in the picture because you weren't wearing a dress. Right. Well, I, as all yeah. the girls did at that point. Well, I didn't realize that Barry T. Joan, the czar, made the girls wear skirts and dresses. I had never seen a skirt, tennis skirt, or a dress until that day. But my mother uh, sewed those shorts for me so I would have all white because, you know, playing softball or baseball or whatever, you always want to have the right uniform. Although girls never had any uniforms in other sports. We just, the boys did. I remember buying the uniforms for Randy's uh, uh, Little League baseball, you know, the coach calls me, horrible. Hey, would you buy the, the uniforms for Randy's dance? I said, sure, no problem. But so it's, even from a uniform point of view, we didn't even have them, the girls. So um, now it, it, it's it's amazing how um, I'm kind of going to go off here. I don't know what I'm doing here. I forgot what you asked me, actually. What you no, asked me? No, I asked you about that, you know, sort of one of those first moments. when. Oh, I, right. In front of the Los Angeles Tesla with mom. Right. And my mother was mortified and I told mommy, I go, mommy, don't worry. I'll show him someday. It was Perry T. Jones. I'm going to show he's the czar. He's our boss. He he runs the whole sport. And my mother was mortified. So that night when we went home, my mother started uh, sewing me a dress and uh, Randy and I talked about this the other day. Randy goes, do you remember when mom was, had that material on the floor and she was doing scallops with this cup on the bottom of your tennis dress that day that they didn't let you in the photo I mean, he remembers it as well. 
And he was so young. I mean, I'm almost five years older, so he must have been about six or seven. It was a big deal. And it's not fun. But I already know I already knew as a girl I was a second class citizen even by then. So that that just those were just things that kept keep happening and that you just chalk up. And I knew as a white girl, I was ahead of the girls of color. I mean, I was not stupid to think that um, I have it tough. I knew I didn't have it that tough compared to others. Speaking of being a second class citizen, obviously what you did for professional tennis, number one, but then for professional sports, not just for women, but for men and um, your interest in other sports over the years has helped women's soccer, women's lacrosse, so on and so forth. But when you first realized as a professional tennis player that you needed to do something, that you needed to take a stand, as you did with, with the other eight women and signing a contract to play for $1. Yeah. We're, we were called, yeah, we were called the original nine, but you have to know what led up to that. First of all, we fought for open tennis, which means pro tennis. So that happens in 1968. Rod Laver gets 2000 pound check at Wimbledon. I got a 750 pound check and I go, Oh boy, here we go. And my former husband, Larry um, had told me, he said, if the game goes pro, you don't realize that men will not want to share with you and they want everything. And they think that people only come to watch them. I go, Oh no, they're my friends. I love them. They're great. He goes, Billy, I'm telling you it's over. So you better start, you know, start thinking about it. So he was right. Totally. And I was totally wrong. And I was very, it was a very tough time for me because I liked these guys a lot. And, um, so I kept, I went to the USTA a few times asking, would they do a women's tour? And they said, no. And then I, we, tr- we kept trying to figure out how can we have a, a really good uh, chance because they kept, they kept dropping our tournaments or if they had a tournament, the ratio of prize money was eight to one to 12 to one. It was terrible. So eventually Larry said to Rosie and me, he said, you guys should, should go talk to Gladys Hellman, who was a publisher of uh, World Tennis Magazine and powerful woman knew he said, because they have ads in the magazine, she'll know the CEOs. Mm. So we tried to convince her in New Jersey at this tournament, um, at this uh, South lawn, uh, what is it? Orange lawn, orange lawn. Yeah. Right. It's on South. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, Gladys said, no, I don't want to do it. Larry called her. He, she said, no, uh, I don't want to do it. I'm so busy. And then at the open, which was like a week and a half later, um, she talked to us again. And we said the Pacific Southwest is not going to give us very good prize money at all. In fact, maybe none. And so she called Jack Kramer, who was the tournament director and owned the tournament. Uh, and he said, no, I'm not going to change anything. And so finally, she was really upset with him. And I remember her telling us at Westside Tennis Club, where the U.S. Open was played, I'm going to have a tournament for you in uh, Houston. We're going to make this happen. We're going to have one tournament. (laughs) Well, during the tournament, the women would get together and there was, like you said, eight or nine of us. Uh, Patty Hogan was there, but she ended up dropping out because she didn't want to get in trouble with the LTA in London and England. And so it was just, it was, and these things were happening every five seconds. They weren't, I mean, these was like, you know, really rapid pace things where you're not going to get sanctioned. You are going to get sanctioned. I mean, to the club and to Dolores Green, um, Hornberger. I mean, it was just terrible. And so finally 
Um, everybody decided we're just going to do it. We don't care if we're suspended. Gladys, you know, you got to sign us up. She says, I can't afford you. I said, $1 is just as binding as a trillion dollars. So mm-hmm. just sign us up for a dollar and, you'll, and you'll, you'll sign up for a dollar. I said, yeah. But we had this discussion in her bedroom, actually, in a semicircle in Houston. I'll never forget. We had a lot of meetings. We had a ton. And some of the other players are Judy Taggart Dalton, Carrie Melville Reed, Australians. Uh, they got suspended immediately when we signed our $1 contract. Rosie Casals, uh, Nancy Ritchie, Peaches Barkowitz, all these players that I want everyone to know because this is the most important moment for women's tennis. The most ever. It was the birth of women's professional tennis. And the most important for women's sports, really. Well, we were the leaders. Yes, we we still are, although that'll probably change in time. But the point is, this is 50 years later, we still are. Um, But the three things that we talked about, as I said to the women, if you want a lot of applause, if you want a lot of money, it's not going to happen for our generation. It's going to happen for the future generations. And everyone was totally into the future generation trying to help the kids coming up. And so the three things we came up with um, are that any girl born in this world, if she's good enough, would have a place to compete because we're losing everything. And then number two, that we'd be appreciated for our accomplishments, not only our looks. And number three, of course, we come from the amateur days, the $14 a day. We knew we wanted to be able to make a living playing tennis, that we had the passion to play. So those are the three reasons. And then we did get suspended. We didn't know if we'd ever get to play Wimbledon or the USO. We didn't know. We didn't know what was going to happen. It was a total void. You know, it was darkness there. But we knew we were doing the right thing. And so, fortunately, Gladys, you know, knows Joe Coleman, Philip Morris, Uncle Joe, we called him eventually. But he was always for women. Uh, he used to be, you know, as president of the uh, what, International Tennis Hall of Fame. Right. He loved tennis. We're very fortunate. And they, he, all these relationships we had helped us even after we didn't have them as a sponsor, you know, in business and understanding how to market and all these things. So we learned a lot. We learned, you know, media training. We learned how to market. We learned how to, we signed every autograph when people were leaving. We did not, we did not leave. And then we do interviews after that. We get up for six o'clock radio shows. We did not stop. Um, And remember we had one tournament in Houston and I kept calling Larry saying, Larry, this is great. We have one tournament, but we need a tour. We need more than one term. We need a series. Uh-huh. So we finally got that. We went out and Larry and I took on the, the first two weeks in January 71 because we, we signed this $1 bill June 23rd. Um, I'm sorry, September 23rd, 1970. So 71 was the first year we had a tour. But in December of 70, I said to Larry, I'm going to try to win $100,000 next year because that's the one thing everybody understands. And maybe, just maybe they'll follow the tour if I can win enough or somebody on the tour. But I'm going to try to win 100. I'm going to announce it. I'm going to put, you know, let's go. Um, We used to make about 1,800 if we won a tournament. We had one tournament where the prize money was 10,000 to the winner. I knew I had to win that or I probably wouldn't make it. So I made it in October of 71. I went over 100 and that was more than Johnny Bench. He was at 80,000. You know, I think Willie Mays was the most at 100. 50,000. So I was really like one of the top athletes in the country getting paid. And I felt that really made a difference. President Nixon called me, congratulated. We got a lot of marketing out of it, right? which, which really helped the tour. And then obviously with Chris Everett and Martina Navratilova and 
we were so fortunate. I know Chris likes to be called Chrissy. So um, it's, they made such a difference. The rivalry, they played 80 times, I think, and had unbelievable matches. And so the combination of the original nine and Martina and Chris, Chrissy, we were just off and running. We're very, very fortunate that we had the sponsorship. To win, a, to win over $100,000 as a player meant you, as you said, you had to win a lot. And I'm always fascinated, Billy, uh, because when I think about all that you did, and then I think about, yeah, she was also number one in the world, and she was also winning huge titles. So how are you able, and, and you mentioned Houston, so let's go to, because I think this epitomizes that combination of pressure, performance, et cetera, was obviously your match with, Bill, with Bobby Riggs. Uh, at, the, at the Astrodome in Houston, still to this day, the most watched match ever in television history. Yeah, 90 million. 90 million people. Yeah, and that was 73. So that's three years into. Right, that's just a couple years later. So, yeah, we've got 71, 72, an hour and 73, but we're in September. So we're at the end. And we also in, in, we also formed our WTA, our uh, tennis association. I went to the men before that, years before that, and tried to get us together. The men just didn't want us. And I had to just face it. They about killed me, but they weren't interested. I still think we should be together. Um, so, so anyway, they so, get so, back to, they get back to Bobby. Yeah, get back to the thing is like, because, you know, obviously the movie that was made about you was awesome, was a great movie. And again, it, it, it showcased the intense pressure you, you were dealing with. And you, you were just saying, learning how to market, going to meetings, and then actually going out and performing. That must, I mean, I, I know they, they talk about it in the movie, but we know that's Hollywood. But for you personally, how hard was that? It was really hard, but I didn't sign up for it to be easy. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew that we needed it. Uh, Title IX had just been passed in 1972. In case people out there don't know what that is, it was an education amendment. And it uh, before 1972, women had quotas in the classroom. Like if you wanted to be a doctor at Harvard, and they only allowed 5% of the class to be um, admitted. And so they had these very small quotas for women. And that's why there weren't very many women doctors and lawyers. But I, I couldn't understand that in the 60s. Why aren't there more? Well, because of this amendment that needed to be changed. And in this 37 words that is the essence of Title IX, they added the word activity. Mm. If they hadn't added that word, we would not have uh, athletic scholarships for women probably to this day. So that changed everything. So you have the classroom quotas are gone. Now you have athletic scholarships for girls uh, and women um, for the first time. Like when I went, I went to Cal State LA, worked two jobs and Arthur Ashe had a full scholarship to UCLA. Stan Mm -hmm. Smith had a full scholarship, (laughs) you know, to SC. and I thought I was living large. I had a job. That was always a big deal in our, in our family. You got to have a job, work. So to have these two jobs, could go to school, although I didn't pay attention. I'm not like you that graduated. Um, <laughs> I, I had dreams. I had too many dreams for our yeah, school. Yeah, you were on to bigger and better things. Bill. No, I was yeah. thinking I would take a yeah. ball to the library and miss a class right. and, you know, stuff like that. So anyway, um, those are, you know, it's all these challenges in life. Everyone has them. Um, but these were particularly in my career area and also for social justice. So that changed everything. But so I playing Bobby and we're in our third year of women's professional tennis. So I got a lot going on in my head. If 
Bobby had followed me around for two years and I said, no, he said, you got to play, you got to play. So Margaret Court played him in May of 73. Right. And I thought she'd kill him. I thought she'd beat him. And uh, I talked to her and I said, Margaret, you know, this isn't a tennis match. This is much bigger than that. Yeah. And she's going, okay, okay. But she's Australian and I could tell she, but I said, whatever you do, you have to win. Okay. And she goes, okay. And she had the worst, I think, day of her life. We've all had it. We've all, when we can't get our arm through. And she had one of those days, I guess. So she lost 6-2, 6-1. And I told Larry, if Margaret should lose, although I don't think she will, I will play him. Because I think we're going to have to, I'm going to have to. But I said, whatever you do, please do the announcement after Wimbledon. We're having the WTA forum four days before Wimbledon. I've got a, I'm playing three events at Wimbledon. I said, so don't say anything. Because when we got our WTA, we, we were so lucky. I mean, everyone voted yes. Everybody signed up, 60-ish or whatever. Um, it wasn't what I wanted. I wanted the men and women to be together, but it was plan B was very good. So anyway, I'm so ecstatic that we have an association. I won all three events that year. I do not know how. Unbelievable. Yeah. But I think it's because I was so just so pumped. Mm-hmm. You know, that we had this association that we're all finally going to be one voice, be able to go, you know, just have, oh, it's going to be so great. So anyway, I said, just don't, let's not announce the match until after Wimbledon. So that's what we did. Jerry Parencio was the promoter. He also promoted the Ollie Frazier fight, fight in 71. He was a huge music producer, kind of really, he really found Elton John He's the one that got Elton in the Troubadour where Elton was discovered. So those are, I have all these wonderful stories and relationships with people, but, uh, and I love entertainment and I don't think people understand. I don't think they understood me very well back then because everything's so antiquated. It still is. But um, I remember Jerry Perincio saying, Oh, I, I was, oh, I have this, you know, this Egyptian litter that you can get on and it's going to be showtime and all that. Right, but you're, yeah. He goes, you're a feminist, so you probably won't do that. I said, are you kidding? I love it. Uh-huh. He says, you do? I yeah. said, yeah. So I got on it. They whipped me out. And those are the things that you just go with your gut. And I, I, I enjoy that. But I enjoy, we are entertainers. First. Yes. Everything is about your, for me, is the audience. Everything, like we're talking now, I know the people out there, whoever they are, this is for them. Okay. And I love it when I go on to me, the tennis court is a stage. It's time for us to give, you know, leave our guts out there for the people. And so when they go home at night, they go, God, that was great. The competition, the fun, and maybe, you know, then we have more fans and then maybe they'll take it. I mean, if we want to get started in tennis, I could, I could go nuts. It drives me crazy. Our sport, how we market it, I think it's ridiculous. How how about when you go watch a match now, and the players have the same uh, uniforms on yeah, each side? That, that's happened a lot at this year's Australia. No, we can't do that. We no. got to stop it. We got to yeah. figure that out. Also, the service clock—you know, right. the clock—you get what twenty-five seconds. 25 seconds. Or 30? Yes. Why don't they have it on the TV at the bottom? When I'm looking, the right be the left on the screen. But you know, like with Nadal's playing, and this is one of his issues. Right. Damn it! Put the darn thing up there so I can count down, just like they do in football, basketball, every sport. You, there's a clock you get to watch, and what's what's important for tennis is our service clock. So put it up there, just down at the bottom, little little. You know, we're not going to get in the way of the and and then as far let people coach. If I hear one more thing about mm-hmm. oh, you know, like like 
Sissy Plaza's dad's coaching. Right. Everybody coaches. They have signals like the third base coach does in, in baseball or the first base coach. Just get rid of it. That way the poor umpire doesn't have to pay attention to that at all. Now, if you get ridiculous or something, that's different as far as if you're disruptive or what. But coaching, who cares? First of all, the player has to be able to hit it. And I've coached a lot. I don't, oh. And I know you have. Yeah, you right. can Davis Cup coach. You you know. You can tell them whatever you want. It doesn't mean they're going to do yeah. it. Yeah, I remember playing I mean, Andre. Like, I went, just, yeah, I remember playing Andre Agassi at center court at Wimbledon. I was like, doesn't matter what you tell me. I got no chance. I'm going to get my butt kicked no matter <laughs> I what. I felt the same way. I, I know, know exactly hard, what but... you're talking about. Like, oh, they're just today. They're too good. Doesn't yeah. matter what I do. Exactly. They've got it, and I don't. So well, you, it's real you, simple. You, you, and you then you still have. try your best because you never yeah. know. It might change the course. You never know. But the point is, let someone go. <laughs> also, I want coaching to be a much bigger deal in tennis because we get a lot of media. Right. Coaches in football, coaches in baseball, coaches in basketball, they get a lot of media for their sport. We need – I have so many – and then we need more women coaches. That's a whole other yeah. issue. People still don't think we can coach. It's just hysterical. Well, you've been you've been you've been way ahead of the curve on on so many of these tennis specific issues. Of course, and world team tennis is a perfect example. I was lucky. We we, we sold that about six years ago. No, I know you did, but you kept because it going the establishment and... the establishment, and of course, they had it again this year. Um, Fred Luddy and Eric Davidson are fantastic guys, but you know, it's like they don't see it. If I, I need. I'm going to write out everything and explain why we would have so many more jobs for mm -hmm. the players. Most sports have about 800 guys. This is just men. Um, you got the NHL. It's about seven or 800. They're over hundred years old. You've got baseballs over 150 years old. They've got about 800 guys at the major league level. Uh, not the, not the minor leagues. And then you've got um, the NBA. That's also got seven or 800 guys. Right. Um, so it's just, we have about what, how many people make a living? hundred and something with tennis. What are we up to? Yeah, 150 ish? You know, probably, probably a few more men than women. Cause there's yeah, still 150 ish. Yes. I would say 150. Yeah, to that's what I think. 125 yeah. to 50. And I'm like, seriously, but if we had teams, a, a team season. Yes, I agree. And that the fans understood because the fans are everything. They would have, they would love it. You can play for a city. You can play for a country. You can decide how we want to do this. But now we have people doing like the ATP Cup, uh, you know, Billie Jean King Cup, which is named. Well, named those two, yeah. Davis Cup and the Billie Jean King Cup, right, are the World Cup of our sport. Right, and that's another thing we need to market it like crazy. When a guy plays Davis Cup, that is the World Cup. That's like soccer World Cup. Oh, okay. And there's nothing like representing your country. I don't think. I just think it's the best. So I, I love it. But what I want to do with with if I can influence at all the BJK cup level is I did a virtual, I did a virtual with the junior Davis cup and the junior Billy Jean King cup this year when oh. they were in Turkey and they were so adorable, but I want to create a, a culture that helps produce champions in life and really get them to understand when they play Davis cup or BJ cup or, or play tennis at all. Uh, I want them to understand that it's not just about, winning tennis matches i want it much deeper i want them to to learn a lot from the experiences like you and i have um and make their lives better because let's face it there's one male champion a year really at the end and there's one female so there's a there, you know what i it gets me crazy because if you say oh a major league baseball player is coming 
tonight to dinner. Oh, wow. But he could be number 800. Right. But if I said, if I said number 800 is coming to dinner in tennis, I go, okay, that's nice. I want them to appreciate number 800 because it is tough out there. I mean, the, the, the players play so unbelievable now. The only thing I don't like is they don't really understand transition and their volley technique. Most of them do not have very good technique at all. And those are the, I think that's where they should use you, your bro, uh, your generation that can volley and even older, like my generation, because we have much better technique and they hit the ball harder. They have more spin. It's a lot harder today than ever to volley. So you need even better technique. Right. So right. I, 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 that's the one thing that bothers me a lot. I think Sissy Potts' volley is pretty good now. I really think it's good. excellent. Yeah, now, yeah, but it's, now, then he's got his head though. That's a whole nother discussion. <laughs> exactly. He's, he's good enough to win. He's he's yeah. not. He's, he's close. Anyway. He's very close. Yeah, but now. what do you do with a parent when they don't give any time or space? Uh, Jeez, I would I would tell the parent to take off to take a hike. I, that's what I would. Well, do. I wish he would but, tell his dad. Dad, and uh, I know he's going to listen. But you know what? It's going to happen cool. at some point. I mean, many great players have had their parents be very involved. Venus and Serena, great example. Right. That, movie. that was a great movie. You yeah, know, King Richard point, was great. Yeah, Richard is you know obviously hugely involved in their in their development. But at some point, they're like, okay, dad, like you know we're grown women, we're going to do our own thing. A Djokovic the same with his parents. Yep. So, but you, what you, when you spoke about Title IX, it rang true to me because in my years um, working at the USTA and then working now at our academy, which you are nice enough to come. Yeah, sport time. Sport yeah, time. Being, being a parent of three daughters. And, well, I was going to say that. And my daughter, <laughs> you got three daughters. You get it. Yeah, but my daughter being, you know, a, a, a good competitive tennis player. But you know, so so sort of being around that world more as a parent. I see the significance of what it means to parents who know that their child is not going to be the next Billie Jean King or John McEnroe. But the idea that they can go to college is, is huge. It's, and and uh, so this is where I'm getting at with you, Billy. Title IX, women's tour, equal rights, presidential medal of freedom from President Obama, which you got in, I believe it was 2006. Um, USTA, Billie Jean King, National Tennis Center, BJK Cup, one of the most influential Americans of the last century, all those things you've done. Can you, can, you, you can't tell me one that's bigger than the other, can you? Because it's just, they've all. No, I don't look at, I look at, I look at it. Those are all blessings. But what am I going to do today and tomorrow? Um, hmm. I'm still very driven. And I'm, I'm t- running out of time. And I've always felt like I was running out of time even when I was a kid. I've always had a sense of urgency, not enough time. And now it's really real, Patrick. <laughs> and um, just want to, I think everything I do now is to help the younger generations to carry on after I'm gone. Because we've got to, we're still, we're, I mean, you look at, you look at, I mean, 1619 is when we got slavery in our country. Mm. 16, that's over 400 years. Right. We still don't even have it right. Then we've got Latinx people. We've got people living with disabilities. We've got all these things. Um, oh, it was really great for um, 
what's his name? Um, Dylan. Dylan. Yeah. yeah, Dylan Alcott being the Austri- what is the person Australia of the year? Australian person. Australian yeah. of the year, right? Yeah, by the way, did you? There was there was. This is the moment that I will never forget from this year's Australian Open. He was giving his speech on the court, Billy, and it was so moving and so touching. And then he said to the crowd inside Rod Laver Arena. He said, I want you to look around because in that upper bowl, there's a place where the disability people can sit in their wheelchairs. And Dylan said, those people are the people that supported me. He said, we want to be more and more part of society. And there's a woman, I almost cry watching it, thinking about it. She was watching, looking on her phone, kind of doing a video. And she turned as he was saying the words and we just caught it on camera. It was lucky. And she turned to, I'm assuming it was her husband, it was a man next to her, and she gave him a high five when he said those words. And it just, it just crushed me because it, you could see what he has done has meant to those people. And what you have done has meant to women, to people of color, to gay people, to people that needed a voice for them to speak out. And you've been that voice for a long, long time. Well, there's a lot of people, but um, I really, to the listeners, um, just try to be your authentic self if you can. It's really hard because some things are shame-based so much that it's really, really hard. But anytime you're ashamed of something, you really have to to search it thoroughly, like with my sexuality stuff. But those in the 70s, you couldn't do that. Today would be easy compared to then. You couldn't do it then. And I get texts from older people going, can you believe these kids are talking about mental health and they're doing this and they're doing that? If we talk like they talk, we would have been suspended. We wouldn't have been able to play. And I said, but doesn't that show you progress? That's what it shows me. Because we certainly had all these challenges that Osaka and others have talked about mental health. And um, tons of people are doing it now. but, but don't you have, coming up. You, you, must, you must feel proud because I'm, I'm actually diving into that topic on this, this uh, season of my podcast. And I've already spoken to some, some experts on mental health. And I know this is something that you're obviously interested in um, and outspoken about. But what, as we wrap up, because we've already gone over what I told you we would do, but I knew we would do that because you're the one and only Billie Jean King. Um, mental health and just, the, the ability of people like Naomi Osaka or, or um, athletes from other sports, you know, right. Michael Phelps, for example. Michael Phelps, yeah, I, yeah. I did a panel with him and got to talk to him quite a bit afterwards. Uh, the important thing is to get help and to talk about it, not hold on to it. Um, and I've had decades of therapy, and I really believe in it if you get the right. That's obviously got to get the right therapist. But I would say that's probably helped me more than anything in my life uh, for my, I call it the emotional office. You know, you go to the emotional office what, one hour or less a week, and then we're working all day, but we don't pay attention to the emotional self enough or mental. They talk about mental, but I think of it as emotional and mental because when they talk about great champions in tennis, they go, oh, you know, they're mentally tougher. And I go, no, they're emotionally tougher because mental is what you think. Mm-hmm. Emotional is what you feel. And I think those are really important. And another thing I think is important just for women in general is, and all everyone out there, is that when a woman leads or speaks up, for some reason, they always think we're just talking to women. We're not talking. That's why we don't have a U.S. Uh, president that's a woman. 
People do not picture women leading everyone. Other countries do, but right. the U.S., for some reason, we've never had a woman president. We finally have a woman vice president and of color. We've never had a white girl that made it to even that, to vice president. So when a woman speaks and leads, she's, she's also leading for everyone. And when, when people think it's only half the population, it makes us earn less. It doesn't, we're not included when they do that. So I would like everyone just to think, and women do it to themselves. I'm not saying it's a guy thing with women. It's, it's the, oh, thanks we do for women's tenants. I'm like, go internally. I'm very, okay. I'm very grateful to them. I appreciate it. But internally I go, no, you don't say that about guys. Another thing is they call us ladies, but they call the guys men. I don't think, I think we're women. I don't like lady. I like women. We're women or girls. But otherwise, if you're going to do ladies for us and you got to do gentlemen for the boys and they don't. And all those little words are very, very, very important and powerful. Words are definitely powerful and semantics. I mean, it really counts. So um, these are things that drive me crazy all day long when I'm watching. I mean, our sport is so great. I cannot tell people how much I love tennis, how much it's done for me. But I cannot tell you how much it frustrates me. We do not market our sport right. We don't have it right for the fans. And okay, another thing: ATP or the WTA, two fifties, five hundreds. I'm asking young players. I'm because I ask all the time. I go, do you know what that means? They go, oh, I never thought of it. Right. They don't know what it means. Yeah. Why don't we just have money and whoever makes the most money at the end of the year is number one, like golf. It's real simple. simple. And also, it'll make the top players have to play. Hello, hello. Uh-huh. If you want to be number one, and I don't like number one each week or on the computer rankings. I hate it. This person has been number one for one week in their career. And I'm like, seriously, you're either number one at the end of the year or you're not next. And I would say, okay, Lindsay Davenport's four or five time number one in the world at the end of a year. She's done it four years at least, I think. So those those are the kinds of things I'm like. And another thing, when you say who your favorite player is, do not just, if you're a girl, particularly do not name just a boy. Name boy and a girl. Like when I try to do something, I always try to include a male and a female. And then I talk about Paralympians um, a lot. I've met them through the Women's Sports Foundation a lot and just getting to understand them. And so, um, and I guess, what is her? The Ruth did her 13th, whatever. Mm-hmm. She won her 13th uh, major. I mean, they, I love the fact our sport has uh, wheelchair tennis. It's great. The way they wheel, have, can you believe how they wheel those chairs around? The, the athleticism of those athletes is incredible. It's amazing. People should go out and watch and just think they're sitting down. So yes. they're lower. They're still mm-hmm. a net. I mean, it's really amazing. Well, Billy, um, all I can say is thank you for for doing this, for doing my podcast. But more importantly, thank you for being who you are and inspiring all of us. Uh, I'll never forget when you when I first was involved in team tennis, and I was just like any other player. And you just took me aside and said, "You keep doing this. You keep playing. Play as long as you can. Enjoy it. Love it." And I'm just one of thousands you did that for not just in tennis, but obviously millions around the world that you've inspired and you will continue to do that. We know that. Well, thanks, uh, Patrick. I love what you're doing and uh, say hi to your family and I'll see you out at the uh, sport time. I'll see you out at the club. Thank you so much. The one and only Billy Jean King, everybody. Thanks, Patrick. Holding court with Patrick McEnroe is powered by Mudhouse Media. Media.